Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Robert? Today, Russell, I am feeling miniature. What? Yes, it's a word you might not be expecting me to say <laughs> no. when thinking about today's guest, but it's actually a word that she has said she almost describes herself as, she's actually described herself as a miniaturist. And when I read that in the research for this episode, I was so confused because I was like, everything I think about today's guest is epic on a grand scale, kind of global, mm -hmm. kind of taking art, music, culture all together and um, even like fashion and design, all kinds of things into the kind of a new realm and has kind of amplified art really into kind of pop music and um, yeah, all, all different worlds and uh, somehow brings a lot of people together through everything she has done. And she's an artist primarily, but she's also best known perhaps for stage design. And um, her work explores all kinds of important issues. And even she's worked with like AI a lot. And um, I recently went to the Serpentine. It was in fact last Sunday. And uh, I saw her interview with Hans Ulrich Obrist and it was also her birthday. And I got the great pleasure of sitting on her table at her birthday party. And we had such an amazing evening. And um, her work has been seen in museums like the Tate Modern, the V&A, the Serpentine, as I mentioned, the Imperial War Museum, kind of all kinds of um, high-end spaces that a lot of us have visited, but also theatres like the Royal Opera House, the National Theatre, so many plays, and um, you might recently have seen the U2 epic uh, stage show that's just launched a few weeks ago um, and Beyonce's recent tour and The Weeknd and Dr. Dre it's just endless and there is a new book that's just about to launch later this week um, it's taken seven whole years to make this book mm. and it's called An Atlas of Our Guest and it has 900 pages and it's the most beautiful artwork in its own right I've never seen truly, a book like truly, it truly 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 yeah and um, today's guest very kindly has signed and sent each of us our own copies which each of us in our respective homes right now have in front of us and honestly there are fold outs cutouts all kinds of paper types like mirrored paper translucent paper there's all these incredible things and there are texts from like some of the most profoundly talented people in the world like mm. brian eno like alice rawthorn pharrell williams benedict cumberbatch bono all these people um are massive fans of and have actually collaborated with today's guest so we have been meaning to do this for ages she actually came to one of our talks and wrote us the most 
most beautiful letter after it. And oh, um, yes. and I was so blown away that she was even, A, knew who we were, and B, even liked our show. Um, but she described to me the other day that it was a bit like coming onto Desert Island Discs for her, and it was really important that she, you know, had an episode with us. So I am so grateful to her and um, can't wait to speak to her. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art, Ez Devlin. Devlin. Hi, Ez. Wow, I'm sort of almost in tears already. That was such a beautiful introduction. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for being I feel, here. Um, uh, I feel really nervous now, Ez, that you <laughs> you feel like we're Desert Island Discs. It's, uh, it's <laughs> such are, a compliment. so Desert Island, Desert Island conversation. It's, it's really unusual, I think, for this type of conversation to become what actually Bono, when he did Desert Island Discs, he called it the hallowed halls. And that's what you've made this quality of conversation. It's so precise, it's so specific, and it's so emotional. And you draw from your guests um, aspects that I've never heard them talk about before. You access what, on your programme, I think, Jerry Saltz called the, the radical vulnerability. And you access that in the way that Desert, Di- Desert Island Discs always did, you know. Well, thanks, Ez. Um, your name is spelled E-S. I know this is a thing that comes up a lot, but it's about the pronunciation. It's Ez because of Esmeralda. Do you get called S a lot and do you find that upsetting? Do you correct people or do you let it go? I never correct anyone. I'm just happy that anyone makes an effort to put the E and the S together. And in Europe, obviously, it just means it or is. It means it. Yeah, oh, yeah. S is it in a lot of languages and S is is in a lot of other languages. So if I'm wandering down the street in Spain or Germany, I just sort of look around all the time and think people are saying my name. That might be the <laughs> it, secret. It, it, yeah. <laughs> Sian's slightly funny essay in the book where Donacian Grau kind of makes a sort of a grandiose joke about the fact that I include everyone in my book and I think I'm everywhere and maybe that is to do with this funny little name. But mainly it's because when I was growing up, there was an advert for BT and... It was Quasimodo on a boat and they were celebrating the first cordless telephone and he picked up the phone and said, it's Esmeralda, she loves me. So when I walked down the street, all the boys would just shout, it's Esmeralda, she loves me. And I was so mortified and and humiliated by this. I never wanted to hear my name as Esmeralda. And so I just used used Es. I was scared of the, the long name. But it's a very cool name and it suits you because you are incredibly cool and as Rob was saying this this book which we're going to be talking about throughout this interview is mind-blowing actually it's a phenomenal atlas to you it's in it's the, describing it as an atlas is just the most succinct way of describing how you've pulled all these elements together but I'd love to go back then so you was talking about when you grew up you grew up, I know your parents are in Hastings now, but did you grow up in that area? And what was that like culturally? So I grew up in the proper suburbia, deep suburbia of Kingston upon Thames, which was, I thought, a very nice place to grow up. I was about six. And my parents went for a romantic weekend in Rye and they bought a house. And then they tried very hard to sell their house, which was subsiding in Kingston, but eventually they did move. And we grew up in Rye on this beautiful cobbled street called Mermaid Street, which used to descend down to the sea. Um, So I guess always there was a sense in in my mind of a town having mythology to it. And the house that I grew up in was inhabited previously by Conrad Aiken and his uh, daughter Joan Aiken, who 
wrote a story called A Necklace of Raindrops and A Jar of Cobblestones. And in her stories, objects spoke. And there was a model of the town of Rye in which houses spoke. So the idea that objects could be protagonists and could have voices came to me from living there. I mean, the school was a little primary school. It was people who were working on farms and local shops and stuff. It was lots of kids, you know, milling together as people did back then. It was just a normal school. How did you find art then? I, I know I've watched this incredible, you're a series of a documentary that's on Netflix about um, abstract uh, art. It's an, it's an incredible series that's come out on Netflix and you're on there and you, your parents appear and they're fantastic and your dad's like a, a serial crocheter like amazing and he made like the dining room table out of scaffolding boards so it feels like the making and with your hands and craft was something that you, you've always had access to or seen yeah well I was one of four kids you know my mum was teaching full-time my dad was away because he was a journalist in London and he only came down to Rye at the weekend so my mum she had four kids by the time she was 30 and Often we would just say, we don't know what to do, we're bored. That's what we said all the time. Either we, did, either we said, it's not fair, or we said, we're bored. That's all we ever said. <laughs> I and, still say that. Yeah. And, 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 <laughs> it's, and, not and, it's not yeah. fair. It's not fair. And she would say to us, you're only, if you're bored, it's because you're boring. And that was, that was her thing, which was obviously my favourite Pet Shop Boys song, being, being boring now. And mm -hmm. um, she encouraged us to make stuff. And if ever we wanted to give a gift to someone we loved, we would make it. There wasn't, you didn't buy things. There wasn't really any money and we didn't buy clothes. I always had my sister's clothes and, and we weren't, we weren't fetishizing how we looked. We were fetishizing what we could make and what we could give to people of what we'd made. Um, so, so we made stuff out of any old crap, you know, and, and we liked the back of cereal packets because they had little dotted lines and, and little scissors on them. And the idea that you, when you finish the cereal packet, there might be some kind of little plastic thing in the bottom of the little bag at the bottom of the Rice Krispies, that was an event. That was really exciting to us. The, remember, the telly didn't start till four o'clock. There, <laughs> there wasn't much to do. So this, this cereal box thing, I, I, I feel you with that. I was I was someone that would be desperate for the toys in the bottom of like the frosted wheats and you're you're an 80s kid right yeah so we had that and the toy yeah that that was like heaven and then using the box to like make something for action man to you know hang around in but also something that really inspired me with you is this story of how you used to have music lessons at the age of 11 going into london and you would have your travel card and suddenly after your music lessons you could then go off an adventure around town and I did exactly the same. I used to travel from Essex every Saturday with my travel card and go drama club. I used to go Sylvia Young's on Saturday morning from like the age of 13. And then I would just have the travel card and I would just go to the Natrician Museum on my own. Or I'd go Portobello Road on my own. Or I'd end up, I don't know where I'd end up actually, but it was just like this absolute adventure. And I know London, so many parts of London now, like the back of my hand, where I could walk from Notting Hill to like Tottenham Court Road without even thinking about it. Because you just end up exploring. And, and I find that so inspiring that connection to you because I that makes curious minds and that allowed that freedom. I'd love to talk about that. Well, I think it's also to do with the underground and the nature, because I would arrive at Charing Cross Road off the train from Staplehurst in Kent, where we moved to, and the colours of the underground were, for an 11-year-old kid, and probably for yourself as well, 
they felt inviting. They felt understandable. It didn't feel scary or dark or like you were in a tunnel thousands of metres under the ground. You thought you were in a kind of children's book with the blue line, the yellow line and, and the red line. And Time Out, the magazine Time Out, if you remember, used to list the jumble sales. And I would look up what jumble sales were on in London. And I remember I said, oh, this one said Dollis Hill. I said, like, OK, that's on the silver line. I can, I can get there. So I, when I finished in Baker Street, my lesson, I just chumbled along, went all the way to the end of the silver line, got out. I was probably the only white child wandering around on its own, <laughs> mashing my way through the, the jumble With an A to Z, pocket A to Z as well? Did you yeah, have one I had of those a little A to Z. Yeah, I got robbed all the time. I was so green. I would, you know, I kept losing my, my money, what I had. But, um, I, yeah, I would just, I felt confident underground following those colours and then... I was more like a mole in London. I would pop up <laughs> on the underground and go, all oh, right, here I am at the Hayward Gallery. I'll go and see the Chagall exhibition. Then I'll pop down. Mm. Oh, here I'm in, you know, a jumble sale in this place. I don't even know where I am, but I've just bought a really cool pair of, you know, jumbo, uh, some cool pair of trousers or something that I'll chop Was it clothes something. you were looking for? Yeah, or that, was it just... Yeah, yeah. but we, we, me and my sister didn't... Um, we would never have worn anything with a logo on it. We didn't think that was interesting. We wanted to be different. We we were we were taught that it was it was cool to be different, not the same. So we would never have wanted something that had a brand on it, even if we could have afforded it. We wanted to make our own clothes, and so we would buy anything that had patterns. We loved paisley patterns, old shirts, and then we'd bring them home and stitch them together to make stuff, or we'd just put them together. It, it was about how how could you be different? How could you be imaginative with the clothes? And did you know at that point then when you were doing these interventions, I guess, with these things you were finding and making your own clothes and all these discoveries, did you think then this could be something I do with my life, with my daily practice? This is something that I can enjoy and make work out of? I don't think so. I don't think... I don't think I knew how... I don't think my schooling in any way or, or anything that I was taught set me up for how I could have the confidence to make things and think that that was what I would be paid to do. I, th I thought I might be a music teacher, some kind of teacher. I think that's what I thought because my mum was a teacher. And that's the only work I'd kind of seen. I'd seen. I'd been to my dad's work maybe twice in my life and obviously sort of sat on the photocopier and, and stuff. <laughs> yeah, the photocopiers, my God. Was you someone that just photocopied loads of different things? Oh my my mum would always be like, stop wasting the ink. And I would be putting like staplers through it and building like little triangles, forcing the lid down on it. And... I used to like highlighter pens, those chunky um, Stabilo kind of highlighter pens. Yeah, and I used yeah. to like collect them. And my, my dad actually gave me a whole pack once when I was about six years old and we were visiting him in America when he was working there. And I remember them being like these precious jewel or something, <laughs> highlighter pens. Simpler times. But isn't that interesting how, how infrequent, infrequently back then we saw our parents at work? Yeah. Like I can literally count on one hand the times I ever saw my dad in his office working. It was a very, it was another country. My dad's work was another territory that we didn't go to. And my children now that we're sitting, I'm sitting in my studio now, they're in and out of here all the time. And my mum's work, like if I was ill once, maybe I tagged along with her to the school, but I never saw her at work. It was this magical other mother, other father. So those role models of what would I do when you ask, did I think I could make work? 
uh, out of the things that I gave as a gift. No, I didn't associate the things I gave as a gift with things that I would do as a job. Was it normally clothes then you gave as a gift or would there be objects? It was objects. So I made an egg once. It was, I blew an egg, you know, I got all the egg yolk out yeah, and I yeah. painted it really, I made, I made this kind of tiny paintbrush so I could paint these faces on it. Then I made a clay box. Do you remember Daz Pronto? It was, Daz was a clay that you didn't have to fire. Oh, yes. It, do you remember Daz, D-A-S? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it came in a, a foil packet and it was this clay that you could shape, like a normal clay, but you didn't have to fire it. It would go hard. And then you could paint it. So I made this perfect box. It was a, actually, well, I haven't talked about this for ages. It was a perfect cube with a perfect oval, ovoid egg inside this cube. So it was all the forms that I've kind of ended up wanting to continue to explore and I made it for a man I was in love with when I was 16 and he went away and I made it as this precious gift for him and he went to Australia and I sent it to him an egg <laughs> to Australia has he still got it do you think <laughs> I, I hope so like a little Fabergé egg I guess it was like I had seen the Fabergé egg I had seen there had been an exhibition and I had seen it and I wanted to make something like that something really precious out of something really ordinary so at what point was it you realised that this sort of being a, a conduit to, to, to entertainment or a, or, or a facilitator for storytelling in some capacity, you knew that you were able to do that? God, I mean, not till I started doing it when my mid-twenties, honestly, because I did tonnes of education. I, the guy who I made the egg for, I went out with for 13 years. Oh, and wow. his dad once rang me up. I remember the conversation really clearly and he said, are you ever going to earn any money? Because he said, you're just spending my son's money. Are you ever going to get a job? Because I just... Did you tell him you'd given him an egg? <laughs> <laughs> Did you let him know he's got a precious egg? Hello? I, I just... It, it didn't dawn on me. I just continued to do... I had jobs. I worked in Foyle's bookshop, actually. But I, I just continued to want to learn. And I studied English literature. Then I studied fine art. Then I studied theatre design and it wasn't until somebody gave me a prize I won a prize which was a job being a set designer in 19 when I, I would I would have been about 25 by then and that was the first time I really did the job of set design and thought oh well I'm doing it now but it, it was never sort of premeditated and thinking I could do it just did it it's so interesting that you studied loads I find that because re- having hung out with you I, the word I was going to use, aside from miniature, was profound, but I thought it was too kind of basic a word in a sense because what you do is so epic, I didn't want it to be something quite um, expected, like profound, do you know what I mean? But profound, when I looked it up, it means having or showing great knowledge or insight or it means the deepest part of something. And that was how, and they, they use it in terms of like the ocean or something like that, but I felt like that really summed you up, like the deepest part of something. And it really interests me that you have mm. this kind of intense capacity for knowledge and wisdom because when I've chatted with you, you just, you're so rich with all of the references and, and it totally makes sense why you are who you are in terms of what you know the art that you've made and, and it feels like we're only at the surface still creative. that's what it is about you is like you, it feels like you just have so many so much to mine it, and it, and every time you create something it's so new 
yeah. and fresh and it doesn't really compare to the other one. And it's like, how do you do that? And it's, <laughs> But it's still like you're scratching the surface. I mean, you, 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 you're obviously an incredibly visual person. What, what is it like for you? What is your daily existence like? How do you like stay, you know, focused? Well, I think firstly to your point about studying, isn't it a privilege how much we can study? I mean, you guys yourself listen to everything I've heard from your podcast, you you are always learning, you're always studying, you're always growing. And and, and I like to imit I like to visualize that every time we any of us learn a new piece of knowledge, our brain actually makes, doesn't it, a new synaptic connection. So we're growing our brains. And I love that thought that the brain isn't the same now as it was two seconds ago. It's not the same now, it's not the same now. It keeps changing. And I guess, you know. The privilege of being alive, not to, not to dive in too <laughs> to the point of it straight away, but the privilege of being alive. I think of all the things that we could have been that didn't involve this beautiful moment of actually being alive. If you are going to be alive and you're living in this moment where you can access so much information, so much knowledge, so much seeing through the eyes of others, um, it is the beauty of being human, isn't it, that we're able to see through the eyes of others and, and learn. Mm. And, and to me, that's the most valuable thing I can do when I wake up in the morning. Okay, how can I, how can I make this day be the, you know, the best it can be? Or how can I honour the fact that this day is coming to me and how lucky I am that I'm in peace, I'm in, you know, comfort, I'm warm. What, what's next? Well, it's learn. Um, and, and, and with the, I guess, mode when you ask how, how my day goes, um, it is a lot of learning because most situations are different to yesterday. There isn't really any day that follows on. Writing the book became a, a rhythm each day of sitting and looking back, you know, 50 years of life and 30 years of practice. But other than that, nearly everything, in, I can't even begin until I've learned so, for example, in, invited to study the endangered languages of New York. I can't do anything until I've done a massive dive into what those languages are. Why is it important? Why should we care? Or, or about the endangered species of London. You know, that's a huge body of observation and learning before you can even begin. So most days are about studying, in a way. Well, it feels like you you feel a great responsibility to what you're working with it, and, and also you sound like you practice gratitude every day I, li I like that energy I think that's really inspiring but this this showing responsibility to like like we show up to an interview I always have to research it's something I could never go into an interview cold because I'd feel it's disrespectful but also I, I love being able to connect to the nuances of everything rather than being on the surface and that feels like you are someone that has to find the nuances within every subject that you're approaching yeah and being and also being impatient and intolerant of things that lack meaning mm. you know so i think sometimes intolerance and impatience and just getting fidgety when when things aren't um unfolding or presenting meaning or presenting connections that's useful i think i, I quite thrive on my own impatience and intolerance yeah 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 i um i was also really impressed in a way how transparent you are on all levels to do with collaboration and your collaborators and how you are just one individual and even though it might be your name 
on the set design, on the stage design, on the artwork, that you've actually come together with a whole group of other great minds and thinkers and talents, and you've learned from them too. And even in your book, you've actually, like, there's pages of names. And at the talk, I know you invited a lot of um, your friends there, and you actually made a comment, like, almost every single person in the room was in the book. <laughs> like, their names are actually listed in the book. And on your website, where it has, like, your information about who you are, it actually then lists your studio and, you know, all the roles they're all playing. How how did that come about? When do you remember like collaborating being something that spoke to you? That's a really good question. Um, I think coming back, Russell, to what you were talking about, the the going up to London on the weekends and doing the out of school course, because school, I guess when you're a child, school is the law, school is, you know, the bone that you retaliate against, the bone of your day. Um, and I kind of, I guess I hated it as much as anyone else did. And and this going to London on a Saturday to do the music class, I didn't particularly love the music class. I wasn't particularly good, to be honest, but I liked the sort of anarchy of it, that it was different rules and I could be slightly different. And I was defined, my little self, even though I was young, was defined by different set of parameters, I guess. Yes. I wouldn't have thought any of that consciously but I think that now is what was going on it was like you know how even when you're a kid you settle into oh well so-and-so doesn't like you but so-and-so does like you and you're identified by all these jagged little frameworks that you fit into as a kid at school mm. and you've got a funny name you know or and and then here you are in this different environment you know different definitions to provide you with the line around what you call you and I would come out of the music lesson and I'd walk down the corridor because I was training in a few different instruments. So I'd have to walk down the corridor from one to the next. And I just remember this corridor and, and, and feeling, not that I was collaborating with all the people playing different instruments, but that I could hear them all. And they were all playing different tunes. Some was classical, some was jazz, some was pop music, some was singing, opera. And this corridor was long and it had light, these beams coming into it, there's little dust particles. And I, I, I can't have thought of it consciously, I was only little, but I, I do think I lingered there. And I think mm. something in my mind knew that any one of those rooms meant fucking hours of practice. <laughs> and that I wasn't good enough and I wasn't, you know, all those kids were bloody geniuses who were seven and I was already 11 and sort of struggling along at the back of the second violin. So I thought, I know I'm not that tribe. I know I'm not that child that is already, you know, racing its way up to the top of the violin at age five. No, I'm not that kid, but I am this kid. I'm this kid in this corridor mm -hmm. with these bits and pieces and the sort of sublimation of music and light and the compression of the sides of the walls of the corridor. Um, I just remember being there. Um, and I think when, when you say collaboration and I have sort of invoked the names of everyone who's ever worked on my projects, in the beginning of the book as a sort of, is a gratitude and it is an invocation of what collaboration is. But it's almost that corridor continued. And I do sense the connectivity between a lot of things. And I think my practice has always been that. But I think now, you know, having been around for 50 years, I do feel more and more the urgency of trying to help inculcate that sense of unotherness in anyone and anyone I come in, into contact with 
because mm. it does seem to me that what's going on with Israel-Palestine, what's going on with the climate, what's going on with inequality, the root of all of that seems to me, the common root is the sense that we misconceive anything as other, you know, that, that, that we misconceive the biosphere as other to us, that we misconceive people with different skin colour as other to us. Um, and and I, I, I see my work more and more as, as wanting to try to make things that defy that, that, that allow that sense of connection, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's like this, what you're describing there is this, you're welcome in that space and it's a safe space and it's a space of creativity and it's yours. And I always used to feel a great privilege walking down that corridor and being able to hear all the kids or doing the dancing or the singing. And I knew I wasn't a dancer. I tried, but I was an actor and I knew that's what I was doing and that was fine. And I would go and do singing, I'd go and do dancing. I was, wasn't as good at that. But I knew that when I walked into the acting room, I was like, that's my thing. But this, this space that had been set up was so safe and needed. And I think it's this permission for that that I feel like runs through your work. It's this permission to stare, permission to enjoy permission to be present and it's this welcoming that you've you've created throughout your whole practice you are you are giving people permission to be in a space a shared space and have a personal experience and that is that is so unique to what you know creativity is but what you are doing over and over again on such an incredible scale i mean do you, you must feel so proud of yourself do you take a moment to go what the fuck how is that? <laughs> What's going on? Well, actually, putting the book together was was quite revelatory because th there's a play we just worked on called The Motive and the Cue about... Mm -hmm. um, Moving to the West End, be there in December. About John Gilgood and um, mm -hmm. Richard Burton. And there's a line in it where John Gilgood... Richard Burton's been really bigging up John Gilgood and saying, oh, he played Lear this, he did Prospero that, he did, he did all these parts, the old Vic. And... John Gilgood says, no, these were just, it didn't feel like that. We were just tumbling from one thing to the next. And these were all just written on water. These are all just stories written on water. And there's a degree to which, as you know, when you work in theatre, there's a sort of pride in the breathing quality of, you know, the water washes over the sand and the marks that you made in the sand wash away that night. And then you start again. And there's a beauty to that. The ephemerality to it is the beauty of it. So for me to go into the last 30 years gather it into the book. I had never seen all that work together in one place. Nobody had, but I hadn't either. And it became a different entity when it was joined together. So... What, what, what does it feel like then to see all that? Is it quite overwhelming or did you forget a lot of it? Is it something that's so... Because, because these, these, these experiences as well, you're creating event art you know these theatrical shows last for as long as they're on this motivated cube is going to the west end get your tickets but like you know concerts and and you know stadium tours these are all events that are almost happenings you're in the room where it happened and that's it you might be able to watch it on tv but these things exist there you must forget a lot because you you're you're always always creating and moving on to the next yeah. as well I think that line in the, from John Gilgood really describes it. It is a tumult from one to the next. And actually, some set designers, there's a wonderful set designer called Alts, um, who, when he came around to my studio and looked at all the, ten, I've got 10,000 objects in the archive, and I had them all, lots of them laid out on the floor to decide 
what was going to go in the exhibition and the book. And he said, I can't believe you kept all this stuff. He said, I've thrown everything away. <gasps> Everything's just, you know, washed through my life. And he's, he's quite Buddhist and he's quite Zen. And, he, and there's a real beauty to that, to just letting each of them. And that, I guess, is more usual in theatre, is you let the objects wash through. Um, and, and, you know, you string your life together from the memory of the day before, and that's enough. You don't need those. You don't need it to be held in those objects, right? So it's quite unusual for me, I guess, in my role to have kept those things and to want to put them together. But it, if you ask what it felt like, it felt a little bit like doing a tax return. Right, <laughs> it right. felt like, you know, that I remember the very first time when someone said to me, because you know when you work in theatre at the beginning, you, well, most of the time you don't really make any money, so you don't really have to do much. You still, you still don't really. Right? Well, so, so <laughs> yeah. I never earned more than 10 grand in 10 years of earning of doing theatre the first 10 years from 25 to 35. I never earned any money. But I never, and no one ever told me you had to do a tax return. And then at a certain point, I did earn some money. I think I earned like 12 or 15 or whatever it was over the threshold. And someone said, oh, you've got to do a tax return now. I said, OK, how do I do that? Oh, you've got to add up. You've got to do this. So I sat down and did it all. And a little bit, finished the, finishing this book after seven years of four years missed deadlines with Thames Nuts, and it felt like, oh, God, I've handed it in. I've handed myself in. I've handed it in. I've done my homework. I can die now. Now you're going to get charged loads of money. <laughs> you <laughs> and they're like, you missed the... the vat as well, actually. Yeah, so you need to put the vat on that as well. You handed in the proof as well of all of this, all of this experience, yeah. Um, what did you? What were you holding on to? What is the ephemera then? Because and does it feel painful to create something so historical and so of such a magnitude, and then it's gone? What do you hold on to of each? What is the ephemera you have? Oh, what do I hold on to from each piece? Yeah. Oh, everything. I mean, in the. I mean, some of it's in the book, as you can see. But there are set lists with little sketches on them. There are all. When, whenever I'm having a conversation, um, in a collaboration, I'm drawing. So there's every bit of paper, all the drawings, and then there's all of the kind of quiet, studied sketches done, the research sketches, and then painting. Some of those artworks start as paintings and they start as little model sculptures, and I've kept them all. I really wanted to talk about the model sculptures because in the book there's beautiful images of shells and even behind you right now in your studio and you have all these objects um, which are often miniatures and I love this idea of you, even when the book begins actually, there's an image of you, a tiny little miniature Ez and I really liked that idea of you almost like this toy figure or something and I'd heard you describe yourself as a miniaturist as I said but I'd love to explore all of that and these models that you create by hand a bit like that box with the egg in the early days um that gift you gave but I'm, I'm loving the materiality of that and the fact you've kept them all as these kind of you know memories of of of, of a work well when I was a kid I went to the National Gallery and I saw the Hoogstraten box um which is as you know that extraordinary perspective box um, and you walk around the sides of it, it's almost like a, a conjuring trick. And I saw the Wilton Diptych um, at the National Gallery as well, which was this beautiful altar piece um, in lapis lazuli and gold, um, these tiny details on it. Um, and my grandmother had sort of chinoiserie um, drawers. You know, she had these, these chests of drawers with hundreds of little drawers in them, and you could pull out one drawer and if you pulled one out there'd be a secret drawer behind it. I love those. Me too. I loved drawers and um, when I was a kid there was something, we used to get this catalogue, do you remember there was catalogues in the 80s and if you 
It was a Little Woods catalogue. <laughs> yeah, it was a catalogue. Yeah. All kinds of catalogues. Well, this catalogue had a toy in it. It was actually a, a, a toy shop in Bath called Trididas. It doesn't exist anymore. And we would just, like, pore over this catalogue of what we wanted for our Christmas present. And one of these objects was a small black cube, and it was called Seven Uses. So, yeah, Seven Uses was this little black box, and you could pull out from it um, a magnifying glass, a compass, um, scissors, uh every single thing you could possibly need, a set square. But it was this tiny black cube that did everything. And I was obsessed with this. It's all I wanted for Christmas. I sort of saw it in the catalogue in August. And it's all I talked about. I think it was like seven ninety nine or something, which at the time was quite a lot of money for my Christmas present. Mm-hmm. I went on and on and on about it. So I think something... Um, you got it, right? You got it for Christmas? I got it. I okay, wish okay. I still had <laughs> it. <laughs> what the moral then you were like, and I didn't ever get it. <laughs> no, I got it. But, but, <laughs> I'd have been straight on eBay. I'd have been like, I'm finding you one. <laughs> but to do with the, the shelves, and you, the book is sort of arranged around shelves, and I've tried to make the book an object that you could believe was a box. So the exact shape of the shelves is matched to the shape of the, of the book. And I guess I've got an impatience with things that don't add up. So for me, the book had to behave like a sculpture, like... There isn't ever a page that has a picture on it. The pictures are objects in the book. So so the pages are either a word object or they're a portrait picture object or they're an unfolding landscape mm. object because I, I felt that the drawings I had done in the lead-up to making works were often sequences of drawings. We read a lot of graphic novels when I was a kid from the library and... And, and I didn't think that one of my drawings on their own made sense. It only made sense if you unraveled it and it was a row of drawings. So just one on its own, I, I wouldn't want to show that. I wouldn't feel confident in that. I wouldn't feel it was really expressive of anything. But three in a row, a one, two, three, that, that show as a sequence of movement in sketches, that I wanted to show, or as a train of thought that says, I thought this, then I thought that, then I thought that. That I think worthy of offering in a book to someone. But then... It meant that I had to conceive a book that could, uh, it could have this many objects stitched into its seams, which is a very complicated book to make. Because I couldn't yeah. understand why, I couldn't under, if you put a picture on a page, what do you do with all that white stuff around the picture? I didn't understand what that was doing. You know, it stopped the picture being an object. Um, do you see what I mean? Yeah. Like, well, it's like sculptural. This book is, yeah, yeah. this book is sculptural. It's so intricate and it's so detailed and must be a nightmare to print, but it's, it's incredible. I think the publishers themselves said it is the most complicated book they've ever made in the history of their company. They've really? never had a challenge really? like this. Yeah, 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 which is a pretty big achievement in itself. Well, I didn't understand. Whenever I enter into a new sort of area of work, whether from theatre to pop music, from music to opera, to opera to fashion, to art gallery work, always I'm asking why why does it have to be done this way? And with the book, I was asking, why do you have to do it in signatures like this? Why do the pages all have to be the same size? Why can't I cut holes in it? Why can't some pages be made of mirror? Why? And they had a million reasons why. Money, <laughs> money mainly, probably is, is the main well, reason. Not even just money, but achievability, just being able yeah. to stitch the book together. A book won't stay to, you know, the book, the book that I wanted to make this is the really, you know, this is four years after missing the deadlines version. All the early versions were impossible to make. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You do so much. Like you were talking about all the mediums there, theater, opera, concerts, fashion. When you go and see things, are you quite judgmental is it quite hard for you to go and see any any sort of performances or things without really focusing in on the sets you know like anybody who works in any medium music whatever you suddenly don't really hear music the other way other people do is it quite hard for you to enjoy art on to a certain standard no i know i i get so nourished i went to art basel for the first time this year and i just I thought I thought I was having an intravenous injection. <laughs> <laughs> I saw the Janet Cardiff piece in the Tangalay Museum and it just completely I was in there all day and I saw so much, you know, as you do when you go to one to, I mean I had never been before so I didn't realize how different that is in Basel to some of the other places. No, I I get over stimulated actually. I get completely, you know, I each piece that I see, I start to imagine the world through its lens. So no, I, I love it more and more, actually. The more I know about how things are made, the more I learn about the context in which things are placed, the more I love it. And the more, actually, as I get older, the more art nourishes me. And I, I, mean, I think it's one of the re- reasons I love listening to your podcast is I sort of live for it, really. It's the most mm. important thing to me. Um, I, I kind of couldn't survive without seeing work and being part of work that the culture is making around me, I feel so privileged to be in a place where I can see so much art. I mean, yeah, the, going, yeah. to, going to yeah. Basel for that three days I went, I mean, I came back with my mind exploding at the, all the things I'd seen, you know, all together. And I hadn't properly seen, although the Lubima Himmert exhibition had been at the Tate, I hadn't gone to see it at the Tate for my, for my sins. So I saw all her work at Art Basel this year and properly encountered her work and then went away and properly read up, of course, her background as a set designer and felt kind of permitted, you know, I felt more permission to do what I was doing because of Labema having been a set designer. And just, you know, I, I find I see work as mirrors. You, you find fragments of yourself in the work. And then when you live with it, when you live with some work that someone's made, you, you feel renewed by it each day. So I, I don't view work critically at all. The older I get, the more I, I, I feel very uncompetitive. I feel really joyful in the work of others and really encouraged and nourished by it. I don't feel any criticism of it, really. Have you found that 
there were like perceived kind of walls between disciplines in terms of like if you're a set designer you need to stay in that lane because I think when we five years ago it's our fifth anniversary now of talk up but when we first started everyone was telling us not to do it you know what was I doing what was Russell doing all this stuff and there was all this resistance and then deep down in both of us we were like we really believe in like multidiscipline art you know growing up in the 80s probably inspired by Madonna or inspired by all these different pop artists that were somehow bringing together different influences in mm. all of their videos like Kate Bush I know Kate Bush was a big influence to you as well but did you find that initially like nerve-wracking or something to feel like to cross over the line into fine art or you know from theatre? Completely I mean I do think your podcast is doing masses to break down those silos so please keep doing it but um no completely I think um uh, I mentioned actually at the Serpentine at this launch of the book, when I first stepped in that gallery, it was 2016, and I was invited to do a talk there. And I was so nervous um, that people would just think I was like, what was this jumped up set designer doing, setting foot in the Serpentine gallery? Who does she think she is? You know, what have you got to say to us? We're artists. You know, we're in the art world. Who are you, set designer? <laughs> you know, but this was this was your imposter syndrome talking to yourself. You didn't actually have that experience. <laughs> well, I asked the great Alice Rostorn for guidance, and I said, you know, I feel nervous about this. She said, oh nonsense! She's going to whack me over the head with her handbag. She said, nonsense! Don't go down that route of the difference between art and design. Just don't go there. She said, why don't you just speak about something you can really speak to? why don't you talk about the mechanics of the suspension of disbelief? She just said it. I was like, whoa, that sounds good. I better think about that. And then I went off on a deep dive researching suspension of disbelief or, or imagination or make-believe or theatre. And I tried to trace in my sort of Googling way back in 2016, what, were, what was the first time that a human being did suspend its disbelief and why? And what was the first time we did an act of theatre and why did we do it? And mm. it, in what way was it survival of the fittest to, to want to do theatre? Why, mm. why, why did theatre ever happen? What was the point of it? And I had a little funny radio mic on my head and I was building a model at the Serpentine, a big revolving cube, actually. I was building it while I was showing these slides and I was in the slide showing the history of theatre as I saw it from a cave in uh, South Africa 40,000 years ago through the Greeks, through the proscenium of the Renaissance, through contemporary theatre, through stained glass windows, through church. So I did a slideshow while I was building a model and at the end I switched a switch and the model started revolving and there was projection on it and I kind of made a thing. And, and that was my way of sort of trying to set foot in that gallery space, I think. Do you have a, a favourite project you've done thus far? Um, I really love doing the giant hands out of the lake in Bregenz in Austria. It was working with um, an opera, Carmen, which I'd always loved and work, I'd always wanted to make work outside um, between the sky and the sea and to take a single gesture from one beat of an opera, one moment where Carmen throws the cards up in the air and she throws her fate in the air because the cards have just dealt her death as her fate and she says, fuck that, and throws them in the air. And to try and hold that gesture 
over two years in a place where it's very hot, very cold, rains a lot. Um, and it's on the border between Germany, Switzerland and Austria, in, in Austria, on Lake Constance. And for two years, these hands holding this array of cards midair stayed, even while snow came, wind came, rain came. And the opera singers came out, sang. Um, we projection mapped to make the cards look like they were alive. That's probably one of my favourite projects. And and I, I always want to know why uh, something exists. So I dug into the history of this opera festival. I was like, why is there an opera festival on this lake anyway? Hmm. And it turned out that um, a young set designer in 1946, straight after the war, this lady, she was set designer, and the guy in charge said, we've got to do um, an opera. We're going to do an opera to celebrate the end of the war. And they said, oh, we haven't got anywhere to do this opera because all of our places have been bombed, the console has been bombed. And this young set designer who'd escaped from a horrible war story in Russia, she said, why don't we do it on the water? We'll just have one boat for the orchestra, one boat for the choir. And that led to this now kind of quite, you know, flouncy, beautiful opera festival. But, but there was a truth at the core of it. There was a need, there was a, a, a story at the bottom of its mythology. So I, however much it had kind of mutated and grown into this beautiful, you know, very kind of grand thing, the reason why I felt drawn to it, I think, is because at its origins was a, a need and a truth. Have you ever been starstruck? Because you have worked with superstars and the Renaissance tour for Beyonce, for example, Adele. The uh, Lady Gaga Lady Gaga. Tour, which Bened I saw. Benedict Cumberbatch's <laughs> Hamlet. Uh, you know, superstars. Do you get starstruck? What does that, what does that feel like if you do? I, I do, but in unusual ways. I, I worked at the UN General Assembly just this year in September and I met Jacinda Ardern and Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados, mm. who is such mm. a queen. She's so powerful and fantastic. And I'm starstruck by them, um, by women and, and men, but they're humans in the world getting shit done. I, I get starstruck like Carlo Rovelli, the theoretical physicist. I, I guess because we work in art and we want to make sure art and ritual change us and are active in the world. And I think, you know, what you do and what I try, we try to ensure that we leave each person we touch hopefully shifted in some way. But when I meet people who are, you know, fucking trying to sort finances out or trying to sort world aid, you know, crises out or you know, people in politics who are actually making it work and, and struggling with all the crap that surrounds them and, and cutting through that, like Jacinda Ardern, what she had to face as mm. a woman leading in, in New Zealand um, and, and Mia Motley. Th those are the people that I'm really blown away by. I mean, obviously, meeting amazing people like Beyonce is also great. You said in the book that Beyonce's, which is really... I loved reading, you said that Beyonce's studio reminded you of Andy Warhol's factory. I'd love to hear about that. You know, she is, like the, many of the people I work with, she's an extraordinary conductor of energy. That, that's really what I would say is the common denominator between those people who we all love to go and see perform, is they are conduits and conductors of energy. They allow the energy of the moment to pass through them and they amplify it and they bring it back bigger. Um, and that's energy from 
their own experience, their lived experience, their observed experience when they were children or growing up or whatever their experience was, they're able to find the enzyme that converts that experience, whether it was pain, which it often was, mm. in, into art. They find that enzyme. And, and then once they're, onto, once they're onto that and they're able to convert their pain and their experience into art, then, then they're able to do this magic thing, which is pass that out to the, to the world uh, and, and then be in a room full of 100,000 people who have uh, had their pain translated into art or into love or compassion or connection through that magic object, the art object, the, the, the song, whatever it is. And that's that communion when it works. Oh, my God, that's addictive, isn't it? That's why yeah, totally. we all want to be in these rooms full of people receiving art together because that's when we feel most alive and most healed. Um, and we all focus on that one person who's just the same height as us and they're there and then like 20,000 people are all just staring at one person. I mean, we did it a few nights ago. We went to the O2 and saw Madonna's new show, her greatest hits tour of 40 years. And she did this uh, speech where she said, she was talking about the current war and the state of the world at the moment. And I think she even referenced like the Ukraine-Russian war as well, as well as Gaza and Israel. But she was essentially saying that each and every one of us, the individual, has the power to do good and to try and, you know, A, improve the world around you, but also through creativity to kind of, you know, give back and, and somehow inspire people in peace. And I found it really, it really struck me just seeing her as a woman, a human being on the stage that so many people like look up to, a bit like all these people you've worked with. Um, you know, it's endless, the list of these, these stars. But actually, the, the intention is, is so pure in a way. It's like this, this, this wanting to do good and sort of improve the world around you. And I've heard you describe those big events, like, like those concerts, having this kind of temporary society, this kind of um, mm. shifting audience. And I found that, just that, those two words, temporary society, I'd never thought of an audience in that way before. Can you speak a bit about that? Um, you know, phrase. I think that's why theatre was begun. And I think certainly the Greek theatre, um, as I understand it, you know, and it's something I only pieced together when I was doing the book, is of course we were doing Hecuba just around the time of the Gulf War. And it wasn't just us. There was lots of productions of Hecuba going on. And people were choosing to do it at the same reason that it was ever written, to try and make sense of war. And I think at the time when Euripides was writing Hecuba, he had a bunch of people who'd all lost children, mothers who'd lost sons, um, and he was trying, he was writing to try and prevent more war happening because of the cycle of war. Um, what, you know, one dead son perpetuates to another dead son, doesn't it? So he was trying to arrest that cycle, arrest the flow of that continuation of a cycle. And he did it through catharsis that, you know, the the idea that if you saw the pain of Hecuba grieving for her child, you, you would feel that pain. And we all know that that works. We know from our experience in film and theatre that empathy, I mean, actually, neuroscientifically, when you look into it, when they test the brains of people watching a woman crying on a film, and the reason why we cry is because our, the, that part of our brain that is stimulated to cry gets stimulated by someone else's pain as much as by our own. And that's what theatre was for. It was set up to try to create temporary societies in those Greek theatres, like Epidaurus, and when you stand there. And, and that's what it was for. 
And I think that's what it's still for. And actually, the word entertainment, I looked it up a bit because I felt a bit fidgety about that word. I thought, entertainment sounds a bit crap. Entertainment industry and all that. So I tried to make sense of it. And actually, it's from French, entre, tenir. Tenir is to hold and entre is together. So entertain just literally meant hold together. Um, and the fact that we've paired it with industry is is the problem. Mm. Um, mm. Because, because entertainment, holding together, isn't even really something we should be messing with industry. Like when you used to go to church, it wasn't because anyone was making money out of it particularly, or maybe they were, but, you know, the principle of it was it was your birthright, like like to eat or to, to sleep. Your birthright was that you would go somewhere to have some kind of ritual. And in any culture, I think the current culture we're in is the weird aberration. In any culture, up until, say, 500 years ago, it would have just been your right to gather together, to sing together. You wouldn't have to buy, buy a bloody ticket. That would have been weird. Mm. Um, I can't remember what the I guess that's why people back in the day used to turn up. I mean, it's a bit macabre, but used to turn up to hangings. I don't know what that is, but there was this kind of community that would go and watch, and it was free entertainment, but it was something really uh, power, like like gri- graphic and, and hard, but it would bind the community and it would make you realise, I've got to be good, I don't want that to happen to me. And it's this whole... That's what theatre does, is it, it, it sets... It gives you a um, conscience or it gives you morals. It, do you know what I mean? It teaches you morals and it gives you the opportunity to be in that space and share an emotion with other people and, and, and experience this moralistic story, you know, going old school on it together and walking out of there, hopefully going, OK, I'm, I want to be better. Well, I think the audience as a species is a really sophisticated being and you can't fuck with it. The audience knows, right? You, anything you do on a stage, anything that's a lie, anything that's slightly crap, you know, mo- and, and we know a lot of theatre isn't very good, right? We, a lot of time we go to the theatre, it's not very good. And a lot of people just think, just say, I don't like the theatre because they've been yeah. to, to too much crappy theatre because yeah. it's so hard to do well. And, and, and when you go and you can just smell the rat or smell the lie or smell the artifice, then it's, it's abominable. It's abominable. It exaggerates the slightest lie into a roar of stinking, rotten shit. And yet when there's a gem of truth, it glows that into this abundant truth that you can all feel at once. It's like, you know, the size of even 75 people at the Bush Theatre, 1,500 people at the Olivier Theatre, wherever it is, or 100,000 people. If it's a gem of truth, then it will become radiated through that many augmenting particles, I think. Do you have time to make work outside of commissions and projects? Do you find your own time to draw and imagine, you know, designs for things that haven't actually been given to you to design yet? Well, that that's what I want to just do now. Like, I'm sitting in the studio and the great William Kentridge came to visit me. He wow. came to see the piece I did at Outside Tate Modern with drawing these animals. Um, this piece called Come Home Again I did last year. And I'd visited his studio in Johannesburg and I see William Kentridge as a real mentor to me because he's he works in opera, theatre, he, he makes his own work, he's found that balance. Um, and he came and he took one look at my studio, he said, this is all fine, he said, but you need to, you need a space where you can... And actually, he didn't use the phrase radical vulnerability from the Jerry Sells I heard on your programme, but it was really that sentiment. He said, if you're constantly 
directing and controlling six people in your studio all day, you can't, you can't find that space. So part of what, what the project is of doing the book and moving the studio out of my house where I'm sitting now um, is to be able to walk into the studio every morning and not know what I'm going to make. Because I ha I've been doing it a little bit and actually drawing the animals last year, I spent four months just every day drawing um, 250 of the 15,000 Londoners that aren't human. And that really reminded me of what a day could be like if I just spent it drawing. And it felt, I, I ended up making the, the piece actually that you mentioned that's at the back of the book. The, it's called Redraw the, Redraw the Edges of Yourself. And it's my hand merging into different species. And it, it's, you know that Merritt Oppenheim cup, the furry cup? Yes. You know how you feel all weird in your mouth when you look at it and you just feel yeah. all synesthetically challenged. It's like, I'm, I'm, you feel all weird when you look at that cup. And I felt like that in my hand because I'd been staying up sometimes 18 hours a day drawing these animals. And I was drawing beetles, flies, seagulls, otters. Basically, the London Wildlife Trust had said to me, these are the 250 most endangered species because I had committed to make a piece about London seen through the eyes that weren't human. And I wanted to make it opposite St. Paul's Cathedral because it seemed to me that that spot outside Tate Modern, when I, Tate Modern changed my life like it did many of us. Mm. And Tate Modern seemed to me to be born of a time when everything changed in our country, when having grown up in the 80s with there's no such thing as society, only the individual. When 97 came, and it was the end of that 20 years of that government, we just felt, I think, all of us so much hope. And Tate Modern, although it opened a few years later, it seemed to me to be part of new, new London, new Britain, new possibility, new art world, new mm. everything. Um, not the 80s, it seemed to be about there is such a thing as society and it's not about the individual anymore. It felt mm. like that. And so for me... It's quite a Thatcher rhetoric, wasn't it? Well, exactly. Yeah. yeah and and, and so, so the idea that I could make a piece outside the Tate Modern that had meant so much to me and that I could sing a piece across the river to St. Paul's Cathedral um, and that I could give voice to, you know, to Londoners that weren't human um, mm. and invite choirs to sing because I'm obsessed with what happens to an audience when we hear choirs singing. So I invited the London Bulgarian Choir and African Choir, the 16, which is the most beautiful, sacred classical choir. And every night there were more people coming. I think on the last night there were like 7,000 people perched outside the front tape modern listening. Um, but by the end of doing all the drawings, my hand felt like that Merritt Oppenheim cup, all kind of synesthetically connected. And when I was drawing, I think I was quite tired, a little bit hallucinating, mm -hmm. but um, the knuckles on my hand felt really weirdly connected to the knuckles of the wing of a bird. And the veins in my hand felt connected to the veins on a bat's wing. And I wanted to make a piece. I made it in a real hurry. It was. I made it as a gift. I made it as a present. Hans Ulrich wanted something as a donation for his Back to Earth project. And he said, I need it tomorrow, Ez. I need a poster tomorrow. So I just kind of shoved it together. I just kind of took all the offcuts of my big project and shoved it together. So I think I'm still, my personal art practice is still present. Like I don't, I give things, I make things for people. And I guess making the book and sort of putting that out 
and clearing out my studio, making space for myself is me after 30 years, finally kind of feeling like I can make space, you know, clear a corner and make space and actually devote the time to my personal art practice. And I think, to be honest, for whatever reason, it's taken that long to to feel that I can. Mm. Amazing. Your, your work's really highlighted um, parts of the environment that I never really focused on. I feel like you, I know you really deeply care about ecology and about the environmental state, you know, the, the, what's happening at the moment and the climate change and all of these things and, and that somehow you're trying to get a message out through the work. And when you spoke with Hans Ulrich the other day, you said this really profound thing about how you realised our lungs. I mentioned it the other day in our um, our own serpentine talk that Russell and I did with um, Ava Jospin, the amazing artist who works out of cardboard. But I, I said that you described the lungs as trees and that you'd realised, even though it's like basic biology mm. probably, but we'd all forgotten that actually trees um, act and breathe and all of that stuff the same way that we do and it, I love these kind of parallels between you know you were talking about a bird then and your hand and like the wings and then like our lungs and trees and how we are all one in in, in a way you know we need to remember that more and care more for the world around us well I think it's a weird redefinition of the self because if you recognize that what's inside your lungs and again when you talk about who am I starstruck by I'm starstruck by James Gleick who wrote a book called Chaos that taught yes. me the systems that lead to the bifurcation of my arteries are exactly the same equations that lead to the bifurcation of trees. I'm starstruck by him. And I'm starstruck by Joanna Macy, who reminds us that everything in the world is a continuation of ourself and invites us to redefine where the edges of ourself are. Because actually, around the edge of your hand is a pretty nutty place, arbitrary place to decide that you end. You know, um, because of course, you know, the air that comes into your mouth just went into someone else's mouth. So whose air is it? Where does it end? But with the um, the lungs, it was during the pandemic, and a lot of us were thinking about lungs. And I started mm. to dive into how they work. And again, just because of the way our education system works, I had sort of focused on art quite young, and I'd stopped studying science after O levels, and so I didn't really know any of this stuff. But I didn't know that if you look inside your rib cage, there are two trees and they are literally like broccoli. <laughs> they look exactly like trees. And of course, anyone who will tell you anything will explain what well, it's obvious. The reason why it's a bifurcating structure, endlessly bifurcating, is because it wants to maximize its surface area. So the surface area of your lung is the size of a tennis, tennis court and it's all crunched up. And the reason it wants as much surface area to be exposed as possible is because it wants to exchange gases. It wants to exchange carbon dioxide that you breathe out for oxygen that you breathe in. And a tree wants to do exactly the same thing. It wants to exchange oxygen that it breathes out to carbon dioxide that it breathes in. And for someone like me who just thinks in a sort of basic visual symmetry way, as soon as I'd seen those two, I thought, well, I wonder if more people could see that. Would more people think differently about their own continuity with a tree? Would they be less likely to want to cut a tree down? Would they more likely want to plant one? And so I made a piece in Miami, which is still on, called The Forest of Us. And it opened just during the pandemic in 21. And it's in this beautiful art centre called Super Blue, where there's a whole load of team lab works, a big James Terrell piece. 
And I actually, most of the photos I took were of my name next to James Torrell's because I was so excited. <laughs> it was my hero. I was like, shit. Well, it's light, isn't it? I mean, light yeah. is your biggest inspiration. I mean, James Torrell just works with light. And the way the piece works is you walk into a little room and there's a film with my voice doing my special voice, special art voice. And it's my voice telling this story about the correlation between the trees and the lungs. And then the film splits apart and, and people gasp because it, you think it's a film and you think, oh, a nice little film. And then it breaks apart and the, wind, the doors open and you're in this mirror maze, which is all made on a drawing I did of the lungs. And you're walking through. So you've heard it as a story. You've watched it as a little film, almost like an advert, to be honest, except it's not trying to sell you anything except the correlation between your own body and the trees. And, and then you walk into this maze and by the end of it, you find yourself in a mirror full of this same diagram drawn from the from the lungs and trees. And you come out and it, it really makes me happy that every day on my little Instagram, there's people there sending me a picture of themselves there, portrait wow. themselves in it, going, okay, I got it. I didn't know that. I didn't know that about lungs and trees. And now I do. And I think, you know, the same about animals, the same about continuity, that, you know, you'd be less likely to eat an animal if you knew that you were continuous with it. Um, so, you know, that that's something I can do, I think, is draw attention to that. I think it's the same. I think a branch is someone ever said about memory, is that when you don't have memory, you form new memories by these little kind of branches that come off and there's a little memory and that holds a memory and holds a memory. And that's the whole, like, the tree theory is really, it's visually beautiful to get your head around and quite, quite a wonderful thing. I want to give you some quick fire questions before we get to our final questions, if we can. First one is, what is your favourite material to use? Paper. Okay. What has been the biggest nightmare project? Mm. Oh, my God. A uh, nightmare project. That was meant to be a quick fire question. I've got to think carefully about this. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you don't want to upset gonna, anyone, yeah. I'm going well, to tell you, every fucking project is a nightmare <laughs> at a certain point. I mean, they all go through the dark fucking night of the soul um, literally, but yeah, the book was a nightmare for a while. I couldn't solve it. I didn't know how to do it, but yeah, they all become a nightmare. And one that never came out being a nightmare. I once did a play, a really beautiful play called Credible Witness. It's the most beautiful play by Timber, Timberlake Burton Baker. And I had the design and it was this kind of spiral and I knew it was right. But in the end I changed the material and it turned out wrong. That was, that was probably the worst nightmare. At the time. Which uh, playwright who you've not worked with yet would you like to work with, dead or alive? Um, actually, Mike Bartlett. It's a wonderful playwright. Love Mike Bartlett. Uh, singers that have passed, if you could have any singers, it's like your fantasy dinner <laughs> party, you can, you can provide them with their stadium tour. Who would that be? David Bowie. Of course. Oh. Have you watched Spinal Tap yet? No. And you're never going to? I don't think I need to, do I? I think I'm in it. <laughs> you're in it. Oh, my God, that's funny. <laughs> and um, can you tell us why we should all go to the All Saints Church in Tudorly? There are windows by Mark Chagall that are some of the most beautiful and unexpected in this field in Kent. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's on the documentary. I cannot wait to go there. I had no idea. It's absolutely beautiful. So well, we should get on to our final questions, right, Rob? Before we do that, can I ask one thing? 
So you, uh, I was actually going to ask similar to Russ about, you know, what had been stressful. Like I can imagine projects are, are stressful sometimes. But what was it like preparing for and executing the forthcoming major retrospective that you're having at the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Museum of Design in New York? Um, because that's a kind of like physical exhibition to do with the book, like an atlas of your life. Was was that a different um, challenge for you to prepare that as an exhibition? Do you know what I did? I, I took my archive with me on the plane and everyone said, don't take it on the plane. You must send it with proper art handlers and all that. And I was like, no, I'm, I don't, I've never left this stuff. It's never been too far from me before. I'm going to take it with me. So I took 10 suitcases and four big portfolios and all that stuff that you see at the front of the book, all those life drawings, some of those stuff I did when I was like 18 years old, pictures of cubes and all this stuff. I took it all with me. When I landed, all the portfolios were gone and I lost it. And I was so ashamed and embarrassed that I had... Firstly, I had watched three movies on the flight, sort of weeping. I don't know, I felt very emotional with this, you know, the archive, this stuff that you've touched. And I, and, I, and then, yeah, I, I was a bit discombobulated and I had a little QR code. And for the next three days, I communicated via the QR code with the call centre in India to try and get this stuff back. Um, and eventually, three, four days later, I did get it back. Oh, my but, God. Um, what, so you've now got the archive back? Got it back. But Thank it was, God. It was, Bloody hell, that's almost like the Zen Buddhist thing. <laughs> it would have all just disappeared. <laughs> And this was EasyJet, right? <laughs> I, I, I almost lost it. It's not EasyJet. We're going to get sued for that. Yeah, you get sued. I, I almost kidding, lost I'm it. Kidding. When I when I left the relationship I was in for 16 years, we talked about at the beginning of the conversation. I left the house. I went to stay with my friend Robert Shavara and I left my stuff. And it was only two years later that my then ex-boyfriend came and said, oh, you might want this. All the stuff that's going into the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Museum of Design in New York for this retrospective exhibition was in two bin bags that that ex-boyfriend was kind enough to bring over. The egg, we love egg boyfriend, we call him. Um, <laughs> we like him. So we're going to get to our final questions as this has been just wonderful. Um, first question it's is... Profound. Profound. <laughs> yeah. And not miniature. It's been massive. Um, <laughs> if If you could have an art heist, you could steal any artwork in the world for yourself, what would that be and why? Oh, it would probably be... It would be one of those Georgia O'Keeffe's, or all of Georgia O'Keeffe's work in this room around me all the time to fall into. Have you seen a, a retrospective of hers? I must have done, because otherwise I wouldn't know the work so well. I must have seen it, I think, at the Whitney Museum. Was there a retrospective? Mm. Or maybe I've seen it in piecemeal. I just feel very connected with that work over time. Um, the way that it interacts with the edge of the frame in that it doesn't really seem to end. It seems to invite you to travel through it. There's some uh, um, hanging at the moment at the Met in New York, and I saw them in a in a group room, and they just were the thing. You know, you just... They just draw you to them. She's... Oh, what an amazing human being. And the next question is, what is your favourite colour? Yellow. Why yellow? Because I live in London, and London is broadly grey, and yellow radiates and pops against the context of it. I wear my yellow T-shirt and I can be found, I can be seen. People mm. know it's me. They might have forgotten what I look like, but it's, oh, girl in a yellow T-shirt. And, and it radiates. I love the colour yellow. What is the best advice you've ever received when it comes to your art? Be intolerant for anything that lacks meaning. Mm. 
you sort of quite early on spot that now? In anything, not just making art, but in any circumstance. I just don't think there's time for anything that isn't going to lead you to something meaning that has meaning. And meaning can be anything. Meaning can just be how beautiful the shape of that wing is. But there are a lot of options for meaninglessness at the moment that I just put a bit of energy into avoiding. You know, I was really perturbed the other day because we did something that I didn't really want to do. Well, sorry, I did something that I really didn't want to do. And I told Tracy about it because I was staying at her house. And when she shut the door and I left, she said to me, you've learned a really big lesson this week. You have to do things your way and just make sure you're always comfortable. And if you want to do something, that's fine. But don't do it the way other people want you to do that. You experience it your way. So never forget that. And I was really like emotional at the door with her, but it was such a good point. It's like, can be as simple as like, you know, the jumper you're wearing, wear the jumper you want to wear. You know what I mean? Like all kinds of things. It's just like a life lesson. Well, I think that the, the, the word hijack is one I use when, when there's an invitation to do something, but it could tend towards the meaningless or the meaningful for someone who wants to make money, but meaningless in mm. every other way. Then I do try, try sometimes to hijack those invitations and say can I hijack that to twist it towards being meaningful in my terms and you can do it it just is quite tiring yeah if everything else about the project wants to tend towards meaninglessness or meaninglessness except for money making then if everything about the project is tending that way except little old you trying to haul it back you can do it it just will tire you eventually Thank you, Ez. Well, I want to finish on uh, a quote of yours, which is, um, the instinct to fill a void with art is, to me, fundamental. You sometimes have to start with light to find it. And you are a great light. And we should all follow you. You're a beacon. And where you go, incredible entertainment uh, follows. So thank you so much for being that leading light and uh, for spending all this time with us today. This has been really, really beautiful. And also thank you for making me believe in synchronicity because when you wrote us that email after our book came out, our last book came out and you saw our talk, it just felt so like touching to know that someone we both really respected had kind of responded and like I had no idea you and your husband had like heard so many episodes I even chatted with him the other day thank you for that generous you know act of even just sending that letter to us because I don't know it really gives us purpose to keep doing what we're doing as well and um, I think more people should reach out to each other (laughs) I think it's nice to tell people like that you like what they're doing Um, anyway as Devlin you're a superstar we love you and um, we will be back very soon. For everyone listening, you can follow Ez online um, at Ez Devlin. You can go to Ez's incredible, incredible. resource, which is com. You can watch Abstract, The Art of Design on Netflix. You can go to numerous sources and buy the new book. And um, it's published by Thames and Hudson. It is honestly worth you know, doing anything you can to get this book because it's an artwork that you will treasure. And um, it will be also be a inspiration point because i feel like it's a it's a it's almost like having an encyclopedia that you can go through and if you're a creative person yourself mm. you if you're struggling that day if you're feeling bored for example oh, yeah. it'll be a launch pad for you to write a song to make a painting to you know design a theater set to write a script to do a podcast whatever like or even care about the environment around you it's very it's, very um, generous yeah very generous yes. so please get this book the atlas of as devlin and um thanks everyone for listening thank you as we'll be back thank soon you. bye bye bye
You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com.